A guy that knows a lot about vintage radio is John Ellsworth. John is the director of the Vintage Radio and Communications Museum of Connecticut, and he will be speaking tonight at the Eastern Connecticut Center for History, Art, and Performance called EC CHAP, a nonprofit cultural organization based in Willington, and he will talk about the history of radio in Connecticut at the Packing House on River Road in Willington. John joins me today. John, good to have you back again. We last talked here in this studio about 20 or so years ago, and some of what we talked about was about the history of radio in Connecticut. Tell me a little bit of an overview of what you will be talking about tonight in Willington. Um, hi, Wayne. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I'm going to, uh, being the first part of a three-part series, uh, I'm going to be talking about early uh, human communication, and I'm going to show how um, the discovery of the use of the electron revolutionized everything and brought us to the point where we can be at any place in this world and talk to anybody else in any place in this world wirelessly. Um, so I'm going to cover the very early history, and then I'm going to bring it up into early manufacturers of uh, radio-related equipment here in Connecticut, some of the obscure ones, and we have some samples from the museum that we'll have on display and I'll talk about. And you have such cool stuff at the Vintage Radio and Communications Museum of Connecticut based in, in Windsor. Will you be bringing some of that show-and-tell stuff along? Yes, yes. Um, like I said, the, the idea of this lecture series that we're doing was to focus on Connecticut. And there are some, um, there was actually, I mean, a lot of early um, manufacturing and development of radio right here in Connecticut. It's kind of uh, appropriate for the museum to be located in the, in the greater Hartford area. Um, and uh, some of the early ones, C.D. Tusca, he was one of the co-founders of the American Radio Relay League and manufactured radios right in Hartford. Um, there was a, a lot of industrial um, measuring and, and uh, metering equipment that was manufactured uh, here, uh, McMurdo Silver, Vocline. These are all names that most of the average person wouldn't recognize, but people in the industry would. What were some of the earliest forms of long-distance communication, especially as they pertain to Connecticut? Um, well, like I said, uh, universally there were some real crazy methods being used until they discovered how to use the electron. And, and the, the, the first real application of that was the telegraph system and being able to run a wire over long distance and then send Morse code back and forth instantaneously was, was huge. Um, it was a big development. And then, of course, the next logical step would be to get rid of the wires and go wireless telegraphy, uh, which they did by sending out a, um, a spark and the spark put out radio frequency waves. Today we, we consider it interference, but at that time it was the carrier wave still carrying Morse code. Um, so that's why we call it wireless telegraphy. And then eventually uh, Reginald Fessenden in, in about 1906 um, realized how to modulate that signal so he could carry voice and music. And... Um, and that was the advent of radio. Most people consider that the very first radio broadcast. He did that on Christmas Eve. Um, he was repeatedly putting out messages in Morse code, listen to your receivers, 9 o'clock Christmas Eve, and he wouldn't tell them why. So he had a huge curiosity factor going. And then 9 o'clock Christmas Eve, all these guys have their headphones on, they got their clipboards, they're ready to copy Morse code, and he starts playing on his violin Christmas music. Um, 
it just must have been a stunner. I would have loved to have been one of those guys that uh, had only heard Morse code dots and dashes and all of a sudden music is coming through the earphones. So, um, and that was the advent of radio, and it didn't get commercialized until 1920. KDKA came on the air in 1920 in Pittsburgh, um, and then the commercialization of radio continued from there. That's a great story. And, you know, you touched on the importance of telegraph to what eventually morphed into forms of early radio, is that when you walk, and I do a lot, on the Hop River Trail, not the airline trail, but the Hop River Trail that basically goes from Coventry out to Bolton Notch and then swings up into Vernon and Manchester, there are still many of those old telegraph poles that are standing on that trail, not on the airline trail or some of the other ones around here, but those telegraph lines really paralleled railroad lines, didn't they? Yes, they did, and there was good reason for that, because when they started to run the lines, um, the railroads had already bought right away across the land to run their railroad tracks. If the telegraph system had not worked with the railroads, they would have had to buy their own right away across the land, and it would have made telegraph very, very expensive. So they basically worked out a deal with the railroads to run the original telegraph lines along the railroads. Your original telegraph operators were at the railroad station. So if you wanted to send a telegram, you'd go to the railroad station give the copy to the telegraph operator. He'd charge you for the number of words that you're transmitting. And then he would transmit it uh, to someone at a railroad station close to the destination that you're trying to reach. And then they would write it out longhand and they would give it to a young boy on a bicycle who, you know, pedal up to 54 Maple Street and knock on the door and go telegram. And that was the whole process but it was much, much faster than the snail mail at the time. I get the warm fuzzies when I see those old telegraph poles because I realize the significance as far as the history of radio as it ties into the old telegraph poles there on the Hop River Trail. Let me uh, go back to what you do in your rest of your week, and that would be director of the Vintage Radio and Communications Museum of Connecticut. For starters, when I had you here in the studio 15 or 20 or so years ago, your location was different from where you are now. Tell me about how you've moved around and where you are now. (laughs) Well, it's been quite a journey. We have been kicked around six times. Um, We started this back in September of 1990 in, in the southern end of New Britain in a little hole-in-the-wall place, about 500 square feet of space. And um, we just, as a, as a lark, as an experiment, we opened the museum because I had I was collecting radios and people were in awe of the collection, and I thought this might be cool to share with the public. So we did, and um, the one thing I did not predict was that people were going to donate. Um, and most people think of money, but not money, but stuff. And, you know, everybody had grandma's old radio up in the attic and didn't have the heart to throw it out because it was too sentimental. And now there was a museum that they could give it to. So there were times where we would come in on a Saturday after the museum was closed all week because we were only open on the weekends. And um, there was so much stuff piled in front of the door that I couldn't get in. And so the collection grew. And uh, every year and a half, we outgrew the place we were in. And so uh, the first five locations, we were basically a year and a half at each location had to move on. Um, the, the last time we moved, um, we, the, the state kicked us out of a building that they were going to take over, and um, they had to compensate us, so they had us get a uh, 
estimate for how much it would take to move the collection, and the cheapest estimate from a commercial mover was $35,000 to move the collection. So that gives you an idea how big the collection got over the years, but um, we now are in a building on uh, 115 Pearson Lane in Windsor, and we were, because of some of that movement due to the state, we were able to accumulate money to buy the building. Um, we've now been in this location for over 16 years, and we're within four and a half years of paying off the mortgage. So we were in very, very good shape. So if I've got grandma's old radio in the basement and I don't want it anymore, do you want it? Or do you get too much of that stuff now as it is? Well, we, we are very selective. We still have constantly have donations being offered to us. Uh, in fact, we have about 4,000 square feet of, of display space, and 99% of what you see in the display space is donated uh, or has been donated over the last 33 years. The original collection is is minute by comparison, and um, so we get we get approached constantly for people who want to donate. We ask them to email me at my email address, uh, pictures and so forth, and then I put it out to my volunteers. I have over 80 volunteers, and they all have different expertises. So we all combine our knowledge and decide whether this is a valuable piece or not. Uh, or something we need to add to the collection. But we have to turn a lot of stuff down because we just cannot handle it. Tickets for John's talk tonight about the history of radio in Connecticut and Willington are free, but you do have to get the tickets, and one place you can get them is at the website for the Vintage Radio and Communications Museum, and that's easy to find on the web of the Google search, but you can also go to vrcmct.org. And I, I want to take a little bit of the title into a talking point here yes the vintage radio and communications museum because it's more than just radio there's various forms of communications what you do and on your home page there's a picture of a kid a girl it looks like about six years old and she's in front of one of those old operator switchboards and i'm guessing that anybody under like 40 doesn't quite know what we're talking about here today but just explain how important those were not just to the phone company but to businesses and other operations that used telephones back in the day right well yeah um the evolution of telephone when it when it first started there was no dial everybody's used to the dial and the way you major connection you picked up your your earpiece at home and it sat on a cradle and you rattled the cradle up and down and that would alert the operator that you're trying to make a phone call and she would manually take a wire that connected to your phone and stick it into her switchboard to make the connection to uh, whoever you wanted to talk to um so those were all manually operated at at that point so uh, yeah, we have an extensive collection of, of telephones. We have central switching equipment that came out of the number two building in Hartford for SNET. Um, it, it is much more than a radio museum. We have telegraph, telephone, teletype, motion picture projection equipment, um, television, you name it. Any any form of human communication um, electronically is is represented in the museum. Caption for that picture of the girl at the switchboard says, Many of our displays are hands-on. Tap out your name in Morse code. Tune a 1925 radio. Crank up a wind-up phonograph. Listen to a homemade crystal set. Pick a song from a working jukebox. Speaking of Morse code, do you get a lot of people in your museum who actually know Morse code, John? We have a few. Uh, pretty much the, the senior crew that comes through um, quite often knows it, and we do have a 
telegraph system going up through the telegraph wires across the display area and back down again. And uh, we do occasionally get people to come in and they start tapping out information on Morse code on that system. Not only do I know Morse code, da da did it it dot it dot it that's ABC. I know semaphore. I'm guessing you don't have any semaphore in your museum. Uh, yes, we do. We have a set of semaphore flags, and that was one of the systems that was used pre-electronic and then on up through for security reasons with the military, um, on up into the 50s and maybe even present day today, um, so that it is not electronic and cannot be intercepted. You are my hero, having semaphore there. This all from my Eagle Scout days in California when I got the signaling merit badge. That's where that came from. So your talk in Willington tonight is on the history of radio in Connecticut. You talked about going way back in the books. How recent will your history talk be tonight? Will you be talking about the advent of FM, for example, which became a thing in the late 60s, early 70s? Uh, actually, I hadn't planned to go that far, and I think uh, John or John, this is a series of Johns where all three of us are Johns, but I think John Ramsey or John Murphy will be covering that. But um, no, I'm going to stick with the very early advent of electronics here in Connecticut. I'm going to cover some of the early companies that were there, and um, you know, uh, that's pretty much it. But it, it's definitely pre-FM. We have an excellent display of FM at the museum, though, because that was Edwin Howard Armstrong's development, and we actually have one of his prototype radios that we have pictures of him operating that actual radio. We have it in the museum. The plan is for this to be a three-part series. Tonight in Wellington is part one, starting at 7 o'clock with John Ellsworth, our guest this morning. He mentioned John Murphy and John Ramsey. Well, John Ramsey is our chief engineer here at WILI, and John Murphy will be on the air here tonight doing his On the Homefront program, 5 until 6, like he does every week here as well. Let me wrap things up, John, by getting a thought from you on the future of radio in general and the future of AM radio. You've got manufacturers like Ford now that are saying new cars will not have AM radios in their cars. I don't have to tell you, that kind of upsets me. Yeah, it does. And I, and I, I think this is going to be a battle that will go on for a while. But I, I don't know. I, I really think AM radio is going to survive in some way, shape, and form. Um, partially for security reasons because uh, there are a lot of FEMA installations around the country at AM radio stations that need to be able to operate AM if a big disaster occurs. So that may be the saving grace. But um, um, yeah, there are more people out there that still enjoy AM than I think the experts are giving credit for. So, Who are some of the AM radio stations that you grew up listening to? Well, I grew up right here in Hartford, so, um, you know, DRC, WTIC, my parents always had Bob Steele on in the morning, and uh, the, those were the big ones here in, in Connecticut that, that, you know, I grew up with. Well, John, I'm looking forward to hearing your talk on the history of radio in Connecticut, part one of a three-part seminar that will be held at the EC CHAP, Eastern Connecticut Center for History, Art, and Performance, and that will be at the Packing House, 156 River Road in Willington tonight, as it starts at 7 o'clock. Tickets are free, but you do have to get them online, and one place you can get them is by going to the website of the Vintage Radio and Communications Museum, VRCM. CT 
org. It's a pretty simple thing to sign up for that. And later on, they'll be having the other two with John Murphy and John Ramsey speaking additionally on the history of radio in Connecticut. John, good to have you back on again. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Wayne. This is going to be fun. John Ellsworth, the director of the Vintage Radio and Communications Museum of Connecticut.